This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. And with those dulcet tones, that means Greg Wyshynski from ESPN. Hello, Wish. How are you, sir? Greetings from the press box at Florida Live in Sunrise, Florida, where <laughs> you might you might get the thing that you love this time of year when we start doing these hits on the road, which is the ambient noise of pucks hitting boards as the Vegas Golden Knights mm. practice their their trade on the ice ahead of Game Three. I've always maintained, and this is personal for everyone, but for me, the best hockey sound is a puck hitting the crossbar. Do you have a favorite hockey sound? Maybe it's puck hitting glass. Maybe it's freshly sharpened skate uh, hitting a freshly flooded sheet of ice. I don't know. Do you have a favorite hockey sound? Mine is the practice crossbar shot. Merrick, there's nothing more beautiful than hearing uh, (laughs) somebody who's using his boss's tickets and is typically an NBA fan slamming their hands against the glass whenever somebody skates by them during a regular season <laughs> game. I have to tell you, it's like a child's laugh. Mm, yeah, <laughs> I don't know, man. I think just generally the, the sound of the skates, like the sound of, of two teams, you know, circling yeah. the ice in, a, in, in what is sometimes looks like controlled chaos but in actuality is is uh is, is skating with purpose um just that noise that that swirling skating noise now sometimes that's a beautiful noise but sometimes you don't want to hear it because oftentimes you read an nhl game and you can hear it it means that there's a reason why you can hear it like for example the uh, uh, you mm. know somebody has a seven to two lead in the game and nobody's making any more <laughs> any, any noise anymore um but that's that's really one of the more beautiful sounds for me. It's just that 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 it's such a unique thing to hockey uh, that that sound. Mm-hmm. Speaking of seven two games, let's uh, let's get there before we get into uh, game three and before we get into three way trades and uh, you know first trades um, initiated by or you know, completed by a rookie general manager. What were your takeaways from game two? Like when you talk about a game that had headlines, whether it was. Kachuk on Eichel, whether it was the final score, whether it was Aiden Hill, whether it was Barbashev on Gudis, whether it was everybody getting chucked, whether it was Paul Maurice stressing five defensemen for the final draw. Like, what were some of your takeaways from a, a memorable blowout in game two? On the, the chucking part, like, I completely agree with the sentiment that Kachuk's second misconduct was a little bit ridiculous insofar as, like, the catalyst for it. But the same people that complain about that are going to be the ones to be first to complain about the game turning into a circus at the end of message sending nonsense if the refs don't control it. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, in the first time in the history of MVSW, I'm defending the refs. I think that's a moment in which they probably have to take care of business before it gets stupid. <laughs> uh, my two takeaways from game two are my two takeaways for the series, which is one. The thing that I thought would be a difference maker for Vegas has been a difference maker, which is their depth. The idea that you can roll the Carrier line out there, not only to start the series, but then uh, have them be the primary line matchup against the Kachuk line and have them be that effective is insane. Like they're 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 slowly entering that pantheon of the crash line, the grind line, the Merlot line of these fourth lines that just become mm-hmm. integral parts of a cup run. The other thing that though, and and it maybe is of a piece of of my praise of their fourth line. 
the Florida Panthers have been able to get physical with a lot of teams in these playoffs. They've been able to really agitate them and they were able to kind of stand up to them and they've been able to really be a difference maker with their physicality. They've yet to meet an opponent yep. until the Vegas Golden Knights where they punch them in the face, literally punch them in the face and their opponent laughs. They've yet to meet an opponent in these playoffs where Matthew Kachuk lays out Jack Eichel with one of the most brutal legal hits we've seen this season. And Jack Eichel, Jack Eichel, mm. a guy who is not known as a model of, 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 of uh, you know, stability when it comes to his health, uh, leaves the ice. Yeah. We all think at the turning point comes back and has an assist uh, on a goal in, in the third period. So they're dishing it out. Vegas is not only taking it, they're laughing about it, which is not a good thing for the Florida Panthers. <laughs> I'll go you one step further on that. Beginning of game two, that was all about Vegas trying to punish Florida. Like, that was almost like the the first five minutes was just Vegas saying, like, you're not doing this in our house. I don't care what you did against Boston. I don't care what you did against Toronto. I don't care what you did against Carolina. We're spending the first part of this game reminding you that you're not going to do this to us. You know, I, m- I remember, I'll, I'll tell you a quick little, one of my, one of my favorite stories that uh, when we used to work with Marty McSorley, I used to love going out for a beer with Marty because I get these great stories. Mm. And he told me a story about um, uh, when he first came over to Edmonton from Pittsburgh. And Marty was like the young gunslinger. He wanted to do it every night. Here we go, here we go. And Dave Semenko was, you know, the veteran, the guy that's been through all the wars. And he said that, you know, Dave would always tell him, no, Marty, we're not doing it tonight. No, Marty, no, we're not doing it tonight. No, Marty, we're not doing it tonight. And Marty said, one day I walked into the room and there was Dave and he's taping up his wrists. And Marty said, Dave, what's going on? And Semenko said, Marty, every now and then we must remind them. And tonight we will remind them. (laughs) and that meant that it was on and I'm watching this Vegas Florida game two and I'm saying this is Vegas reminding the Florida Panthers that not only are they not going to do this in their building but Vegas is going to do it to them did you see it the same way wish yeah off off the hop without question and 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 they've got the guys to do it too like Barbashev is a is a tough guy and and that hit that he laid on Gudis was a was a tough hit um I know you're a big uh Nick Hague guy I mean they've got so much size and so much snarl on this lineup but it's smart it's not like stupid snarl it's not like we're going to take a misconduct every game kind of snarl like it's 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 the good kind of physicality um but again they're dishing it out they're taking it they're laughing about it I, I I'm I covered the Panthers earlier today after practice and like they're all kind of saying the the right things like you know brandon montour was talking about breaking down tape better understanding what's gone wrong with them defensively but like is there a single Mm -hmm. thing that they could take from the two games of the series that they've lost that gives them that spark for game three because that's that's what kind of i am on the series right now merrick is like normally you leave the first two games if you lose and you're like okay we can clean like i felt that way after game one like four posts the save by Aiden Hill. It's like if one of those is an inch in a different direction, different game. I didn't get any of that from game two. Game two felt like a complete backslide from any momentum they would have built in game one. And so I'm left coming here for game three and wondering what is it they could possibly build on after that annihilation and and then coming apart at the seams in game two. 
I'll tell you what makes it even worse for the Florida Panthers. And I can understand being upset at not getting calls. I can understand about, you know, players getting chucked, you know, <laughs> indiscriminately <laughs> at the end. But it almost seems as if, you know, everything around, like all the conversation around Florida is, you know, we're getting screwed by the officials. We're getting screwed by the reps. So not, not I mean, not only are you not able to find something you can take out of the first couple of games to use for some type of fuel, you know, you're walking down the path of, you know, Roger Nilsson waving the white flag with the Vancouver mm. Canucks, like getting completely distracted with what's being what's happening with the officials here, which makes it even worse. I get being upset. I understand. If you're a Florida Panthers fan, maybe you feel hosed. I don't know. You're getting physically dominated too. You're getting out skilled. You're getting out goaltended. You're getting out everything right now. But I, I still maintain you only make it worse if you make the conversation about officiating because it gives you an easy way out. Doesn't matter what well, we do, we're getting screwed. Except, except, isn't it? I mean, listen. Part of the the, the Paul Maurice Ovier is the us against them mentality, and they've had that throughout these playoffs. And I'm sure part of the complaining about the officiating or, or focusing on the officiating is to try to build up that whole the world's against us, boys. They all want Vegas to win. We've got to hunker down because now we're playing the, the the Knights and the refs or some such. I'm sure that's probably part of this. But yeah, yeah. you know, I guess I guess the other part of that though is is Merrick like. You know, how much of the Panthers have we really seen when they're constantly being interrupted by uh, minor penalties, having to kill off power plays, um, their own special teams play when they get the calls going their way, Kachuk being off the ice for 20 minutes <laughs> in a game. Like, like there, there's a lot of stuff <laughs> happening here that has not enabled us to really see them find their rhythm. And again, find their rhythm after what was tied for the fourth longest layoff in between the conference final and the Stanley Cup final. Now, I think that excuse goes away in game two. You, you got a game under your belt. You should be able to find your rhythm better. But let's not pretend mm -hmm. that like everything that's happened in these first two games vis-a-vis -vis special teams play does not play into what Florida does best. Let me throw one more thing out at you here. I was thinking about this last night. Uh, so trying to think of like, okay, so what is it about Vegas? Like, what is the the secret sauce here? Like, on on the one hand, we've talked about um, Kelly McCrimmon and previously George McPhee and what we like to call this 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 ruthless pursuit of the Stanley Cup. I don't care that you had a Vesna Trophy season and you got a great smile and we built our original marketing marketing around you, Mark Andre Fleury. You're gone. Nate Schmidt, I know you made a big commitment to Vegas and you love it here and you're great on the ice and great off the ice and that's fantastic. But we got a, you know, slightly used but still shiny Stanley Cup champion Alex Petrangelo, so you're gone. Like, they've made some really ruthless decisions to get there. Um, but that can't be all of it. And it can't just be, oh, we're bringing in stars. Here's Petrangelo, here's Jack Eichel, big names that are out there. The Vegas Golden Knights are in on them. And one of the things I'm really interested, I'm really interested in, is teams that fly in the face of contemporary thinking and do so with success. Now, the Vegas Golden Knights aren't going to be a draft and develop team because they're about five minutes old. Okay, we understand that. <laughs> but the one thing that they, the one thing that they do have, the one thing that they do have, wish, um, there is a prevailing wisdom, and this has happened really in the last five or six years, maybe even a little bit longer, so maybe I'm being generous. But there's a feeling that with your bottom six forwards, okay, let's focus there. With your bottom six forwards, 
the feeling is if someone from your bottom six has a great season or exceeds expectation, don't reward that player financially. Let him go and then find someone else that can do that role cheaper because these players exist on the free agent market. These players exist in the American <laughs> Hockey League. Your bottom six should be plug and play. But Vegas hasn't done that. Like, you look at how long uh, Nicholas Waugh has been there. William Carrier uh, has been there. You look at him, even Keegan Colasar. Like, you look at how long these players have been there with Vegas, part of the team. It's not just, you know, the superstars and everybody else. Like, they are very much part of the mix, and they are very much part of the identity. And as much as we talk about, you know, being disloyal to Marc-Andre Fleury, and I can't believe they did this to Nate Schmidt, and what's the message, you know, to the marketplace for free agents? I kind of look at Vegas and say, yeah, they've made those decisions, but every GM makes those decisions. And where you do see a lot of loyalty is in their bottom six. And what do we always talk about when you win Stanley Cups? Your bottom six. These guys have been there for a long time. Do you think that's part of it? Because I started thinking about this recently. I, I really think that I've sort of stumbled and fumbled onto something here. Like, there is not the, the, the two-tiered experience on this team. There's not the superstars and then the guys that are shuffling in and out underneath them. It's a full team. Does that resonate with you? Well, the full team part does. I think that's, you know, not to go off on the tangent on Eichel, but I think that's one reason why he's thriving is he doesn't have to be Eichel. He just, it's, it's, the, it's the Vegas Golden Knights with Jack Eichel. It's not Jack Eichel's Vegas Golden Knights. And I think that's a huge reason why he's thriving. A um, couple things. First of all, the flurry part of this, let's, let's, not, let's tell the complete story here, which is that it wasn't simply just Vezna, the guy, face of the franchise. It was the guy the owner said was safe. You and your family are part of the Vegas family. You're safe. And then they got rid of him. By property. I mean, that's, that's what, by property. Yeah, that's what, that's what, that's what leads. Yeah, by property. That's what leads to photoshops, you know, with swords in the back. So that, that, being, said, that, being, that being said, what you yeah. said there about their bottom six and about that loyalty and those guys being there, um, it reminds me of a conversation I had earlier in the playoffs during the Western Conference final with, with Jonathan Marsh. So, and I'm like, how are you guys able to do this every year? Like, how are you guys able to be so competitive? You're an expansion team. And he said, you know, and maybe this is him putting himself over a little bit, but he said, look, you know, I'm here. Riley Smith is here. We've got like five or six guys that have been here since the beginning. And we're the ones who really kind of laid the foundation for the culture. And we're still here. And everybody else that comes in, they're coming into that culture. So they've been through three coaches and they've been to through two general managers, but there are some constants and one of them mm -hmm. is Carrier and one of them is Marcheseau. One of them is Smith and one of them is McNabb and, and, and Shea Theodore. And that DNA that was sort of developed when this franchise was born five minutes ago, I think is a prevailing reason why they remain successful and why they're successful now. Um, the way they play, the way they work, Having those guys there and the grunts are part of it is is why we're watching them become two wins away from the cup, I think. Do you think that – I'm going to go a little bit down a path here. Do you think that the success of the Vegas Golden Knights, their second Stanley Cup appearance and you know two games away from winning the Stanley Cup, 
um, to say nothing of the success this season of the Seattle Kraken. Financially, a very big success last season. This season, financially, a big success. And on the ice, a success as well. But Vegas specifically, do you think that the success of Vegas on and off the ice has done more than its lion's share of heavy lifting, raising franchise values and expansion fees for the next people to come in. Like, I think when the book gets written about this era of hockey, I really hope that there's one sizable chapter to one thing that I think has completely changed the economic fortunes of the NHL. Because now we're seeing the Senators going for a billion dollars. What do you think expansion is going to be like? Like whether it's Atlanta, Houston, uh, Salt Lake City, whatever. It's going to be a monster number. And there's one thing the NHL did that juiced franchise values and and expansion fees. And that is they changed the expansion rules. And I don't even know if they intended that to have the cascading effect financially that it's had. But when they changed the rules for expansion that allowed teams to be competitive almost, in a Vegas case, immediately, it raised franchise values and it attracted other people, other investors and potential owners to the sport. Because it was no longer, you know, we're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars here and then we're going to sit and do nothing for 10 years. That's not attractive. But... The way that the NHL does it now, where you can be competitive right away after spending your soon-to-be billion dollars, that attracts a certain kind of business person. And they open their wallets a little bit wider because of it. Agree or disagree? I I agree that I think it makes an expansion team more attractive to somebody to know that you're not going to be wandering the wilderness for five years before you're you're competitive. Without question, I think that that's a, a more appealing thing. And we're never going back to the days of whatever the hell rules we had when the Ottawa Senators put their first team together. <laughs> like, we're clearly, we're clearly Peter going Sidorkowitz, to be, come on down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brad Marsh, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to be in this thing from now on. But but you, you, you mentioned yeah. Vegas and Seattle. And there's another thing that those two teams have in common. And that is currently, but probably not for long, they do not have a National Basketball Association team sharing their building with them. And when you talk about mm. Vegas's success off the ice, first of all, I mean, they were first in market. They're bigger than the Raiders in that, among, amongst the fans in that city. So, I mean, like, that's a huge part of mm. Vegas's success. But Seattle didn't have to share the building with an NBA team. And Houston will, at least at first. And Salt Lake City, I mean, the, the main driving force behind that bid is the, the owner of the NBA team. So, like... Yep. I think the, the I think that has to factor in as well is this idea that, you know, part of the reason that these two franchises were so successful is because they were the only show in town when it comes to arena sports at that time of the year. So that's that's one thing. Mm. But the other parts of it too, Merrick, like let's let's be honest. We're getting billion dollar valuations for teams and, and billion dollar bids for teams. One, because contracts remain cro- cost controlled because you and I lost the, 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 big, the big battle about the, the luxury tax back in 2005. And um, and then two because the NHL has a really really solid and impressive media rights deal right now that will only get more solid and impressive when Canada's up. So like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of, of of ancillary reasons besides the competitive nature of the teams on the ice that I think we're seeing these kinds of valuations in particular for what teams will play to be an expansion team. 
Okay, so I went on a uh, on a little fishing trip, uh, and I'm going to do it with you here. I did it with Elliot, and he wouldn't bite, uh, but he always comes up. He always pulls up before you know he's going to say one way or another on a hypothetical like I'm about to present to you. But let's see where I can get to with you. So given how outside of Arizona, it seems as if, you know, there are 31, to varying degrees, healthy franchises in the NHL right now. And the Ottawa Senators are poised to be sold somewhere in the neighborhood of a billion dollars. And even if it's not a billion, who knows? Maybe it's 900 million and they announce it at 1.2. I don't know. Um, we know that expansion fees are going to be immense. We know that there is a lineup uh, of owners that, that want a piece of, of the NHL. Given that the, uh, the players, the NHL Players Association, uh, will not participate in this bounty. This goes back to the legacy of the CBA. Um, oh, yeah. Do you, think, do you think that the NHL... Now, maybe more than ever in the league's existence, certainly um, under the stewardship of Commissioner Gary Bettman, that this league, we can finally say, is lockout proof. <laughs> what does lockout proof mean? Like they won't suffer if you cancel there's the no, season? There's no, there, there, is, there is no there there for another lockout. They oh, have you're the saying deal they, they won't want. lock out the players? Correct. Okay, so let me get this straight. So you're saying you're saying to me that the owners who yeah. frankly took an L on the last negotiation, okay, uh, are usually the ones that have all of the sway when it comes to labor talks and are all billionaires uh, not because of the kindness of their heart to their employees, but because they maximize profit at every turn uh, to the point of, of, of doing uh, inhumane uh, decisions with personnel in their other businesses. Uh, they will not seek to squeeze even a little bit more water out of the stone if given the opportunity. Depends on how you feel that would damage this golden goose right now. Because right now, this is so lopsided a win for the owners. That sure. I almost, I, it's not that I laugh, but I, I at least snicker when I hear players complaining about escrow. It's like, this is what you signed up for. Like this, mm-hmm. this, 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 this is your CBA. If you're, if you're part of the NHL Players Association, no more whining and grousing about escrow. Your main concern should be hockey-related revenue. That is your battle right there. And, you know, because everywhere else, the, the NHL has this, this overwhelming win right now over you. I, I agree with you that I, I, the, the um, potential for a, a lengthy, painful work stoppage, I think, is, is at its lowest point maybe in my lifetime as a hockey fan. I think for that being sure, said, in both of our lifetimes, that, for sure. That being said, there's always going to be things they want, Merrick, whether it's what, contract term, whether it's guarantees of money. I mean, there's always going to be things that they want, and when they go to the table, they'll seek. And hopefully that doesn't manifest into a lockout, but, but I could not in any way, shape, or form, given the nature of these men... 
and how they made their money <laughs> and knowing knowing and seeing how even if there is a whiff of blood in the water the sharks will circle these players you i cannot go as far as to say it's lockout proof i i i cannot say because you look at something like contract length okay i cannot see them say yeah you know what let's scotch half a season damage the league so we can get contracts from eight to five years max can you yeah i can't it's not big enough it's not big enough well especially now that there there isn't there there isn't the big enough issue there especially now that they know that the concessions they make don't even matter or else it would have gone to the olympics (laughs) it just doesn't matter they could just make up something you know i don't know man it's i i I hope you're right and uh, and there's every reason for you to be right but uh and maybe this is the Greg Wyshynski that grew up in a union house and only attended college because of the money that I was able to get scholarship wise from my dad's electrician union in New York. But I don't trust mm-hmm. the owners in, a, <laughs> in any way, shape or form to not try to take a little bit of skin off, off of labor. I, I'll never trust that to be the case. What, what, what's the old Monty Burns line? I have, uh, I have wealth. I have riches uh, beyond more than I could ever imagine, but I'd give it up. I'd give all of it up. For just a little bit more, uh, right? Exactly. What do you? And, 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 uh, and, and, and then Jeremy Jacobs walks. Jeremy Jacobs walks into the board of governors meeting wearing a coat made of dogs. Exactly. I understand what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> okay, real quick. Uh, I got about like three minutes left here with you. I know, I know you're busy. I'm busy. I got uh, Andrew Burnett coming up on the other side. Um, hey now. Can I get your thoughts on the Iron? Can I get your thoughts on the Iron Sheik? Can I get your thoughts We've on, talked- on the passing of uh, of? We- uh, of, of when Sheiky. you did your soliloquy, because I didn't, I didn't get to hear it. Did you talk about him and Hacksaw on the on the Jersey Turnpike? No, we did. We, we didn't okay. get to that, but that was like one of the the ends of the kayfabe era. Right. So that's that's for the Iron the Iron Sheik for me as a kid was always obviously the guy that Hogan beat, you know, to start Hulkamania. Yep. And and then also you know had that amazing run with Nikolai Volkov when Vince McMahon. Uh, carried on the great tradition of pro wrestling that uh, if you can find two countries Americans hate, put them together and they're a great tag team. Um, <laughs> but the, but I, the thing I referenced, for those who don't know, so Hacksaw Jim Duggan was a good guy wrestler and the Iron Sheik was a bad guy wrestler. And, uh, and back in the day, you know, the good guys and the bad guys, oh, they hated each other. They would never, ever spend time with each other. So mm. as a kid, the moment when I realized for certain that professional wrestling was maybe not on the up and up, was the time when Hacksaw Jim Duggan and the Iron Sheik were sharing a car together. But not only that, Merrick, they were pulled over on the Garden State Parkway <laughs> for having what I believe was marijuana in the car. Um, and this, and of Coke, course, yeah. made... And Coke. And, and so this made all the papers in, yeah. in the New York area. And the young Greg Wyshynski is like, but Dad, Hacksaw Jim Duggan loves America. The Iron Sheik's from Iran. How could that be? And so that will always be my Iron Sheik thing. Was the moment when I realized it was not on the up and up was the moment that him yeah. and Hacksaw Jim Duggan were picked up for a drug offense in the Garden State Parkway. Yeah, you know when I re- when I realized it wasn't on the up and up when I first saw a match where someone got thrown into the ropes and he ran back into his opponent with his hands down. <laughs> Little hints along the way. We should have seen the signs, Merrick. We should have seen the signs. Number of clues, number of clues. All right, uh, back to your beat. Uh, thanks, man. We'll talk in seven days. Anytime. 
There is Greg Wyshynski from ESPN. Uh, tomorrow is game three. Man, it feels like forever between games two and game three, and there's only one extra day off, but at this time of year, it just feels so long. Uh, we're going to get on the Nashville Predators page here in a couple of moments. Um, Andrew Burnett is the head coach of the Nashville Predators, as named last week. He will join me here in a couple of moments. Uh, look forward to talking to the man they call Bruno, not just about the Nashville Predators, but also about the success last season with the New Jersey Devils, where he was on the bench with Lindy Ruff, and his thoughts on this year's edition of the Florida Panthers, a team that he helped squire through last season. Uh, record regular season for the Florida Panthers, even though they bowed out in the second round against Tampa. Um, we'll get his thoughts on the Cats and the Preds and the Fangs and Nashville. Andrew Burnett is next as the Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. Bruno coming up in moments.